coming up this week off screen. Tom Hanks walks us across a bridge of spies. Pixar introduces us to the good dinosaur. Kate Blanchett is Carol. We find out what it's like being AP. It's a Swedish anorexia drama with my skinny sister. And Johnny Depp is a black mass. All those to come and more off screen. This is this is off screen. Off screen. the latest film news and reviews. This is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. Welcome to Offscreen, I'm Van Connor. My name is Case Allen. So, shall we start with Le Bridge of Spies this week? Le Bridge of Spies. So, this is, of course, the... Well, this was, for a long time, this was untitled Steven Spielberg Cold War Tom Hanks thriller. Yeah, for like two years. For like two years, wasn't it? And then, uh, okay, so now it's now now got a title. It is Bridge of Spies. Mm. It stars Tom Hanks. It stars Mark Rylance. And, well, it's the story of uh, Jim Donovan, who's a, an insurance lawyer mm. dur- during the Cold War. And uh, he is tasked by the U.S. government to well, provide a legal defense for a captured Russian spy on American soil, played by Mark Rylance, who most of us know through... I mean, I know him from Blitz. I know him from uh, Wolf Hall. Wolf Do you remember Hall? that? It was a BBC oh. Henry, Henry VIII drama but he's excellent well this is it so as the legal defence for Mark Rylance's character who's Rudolf Abel this is all apparently based on true events mm. as well as the legal defence uh, falls apart and Tom Hanks's professional reputation is in tatters as a result the capture by the Russians of Gary Powers pilot of the U-2 mission the Aurora mission mm. um, leads to a possible prisoner exchange and Jim Donovan becomes the unlikely figurehead <laughs> of a union between the US and the USSR taking place in Soviet Berlin. Here's a clip of the actual trial of Rudolf Abel. How did we do in there? Uh, not too good. Apparently you're not an American citizen. That's true. And according to your boss, you're not a Soviet citizen either. Well, the boss isn't always right. But he's always the boss. Do you never worry? Would it help? So would it help? That's, would it help? That's the line you keep quoting. That's like his catchphrase, isn't it? It kind yeah. of is because I think it's two or three times we get the joy of that line yeah. throughout this film. But it doesn't seem to wear thin. It doesn't yeah. at all. Now, um, say so the, the big thing with this one is when the director of Munich invites you to <laughs> Berlin, you you go along for that, right? Yeah. Because odds are it's going to be pretty good. And this owes a real debt to Munich. Mm. I think it has that very that very distinct style that Spielberg had adopted for Munich. And um, well, I liked it very much. I thought this was. Really Really Me compelling, too. really twisty turn. Yeah. You kind of know where it's going if you know your history. Hmm. Like if you the second Gary Powers and the U two missions comes up, you, you think, okay, I think it's I can, I can yeah. kind of spot where this is gonna this is gonna head. Yeah. But uh, but the thing is, you've got and you pointed this out about Tom Hanks. You said, oh right, yeah. You said Tom <laughs> Hanks is just this generation's uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. Stewart. Yeah. And it's hard not to think that. And that comparison has been made, actually, by a fair few people since. No you were the first person I heard come out with it. 
but since I've coined it yeah you you should have trademarked that I should have done revisionist chosen one origin story TM (laughs) generation Jimmy Stewart TM we should copyright that one Um, but you've got the great Tom Hanks performance and you don't expect anything less from Tom Hanks but what you really don't expect with this film is such a great performance from Mark Rylance who's absolutely terrific Uh, did you expect that much from him in this because it seems to come out of nowhere absolutely out of nowhere his character is amazing it's yeah it's, you've also it. got um, a, a great performance for Gary Powers, who's played by uh, Austin Stoll. Really, yeah, sort of, really like kind him. of lives up to the legend of Gary Powers in the sense he's kind mm. of what you imagine Gary Powers to have been, but he gives him a little bit of, of genuine human depth as well. Yeah. But what I really liked about the film, outside of Spielberg's revisiting his Munich style, <laughs> outside of the really impressive production design, was that screenplay, uh, which is got the Coen brothers. The Coen brothers, on, the yeah. Coen brothers working on this screen. Apparently, they only did a, a late rewrite, mm. but you can tell. You can tell they're on this film because it has that verve, that swagger, that sort of uh, minute, that character-based yeah, minutiae that we've come absolutely. to love from them. I, I was aware that they had done this, this rewrite on it, but um, a lot of the people I was watching the film with, just in the screen, did not know, and you could just audibly hear the gasps. <laughs> and people were like, oh, Fargo, just like, what's going on? These little references. Yeah. And that's the thing I really enjoyed. It's part courtroom drama, part John Le Carré yeah. adaptation. It has something of a Tinker oh, Taylor vibe yeah. to it. Oh, I thought that when, as soon as it opens, you it, get that. It has that Tinker Taylor sort of appeal, yeah. but it opens. Well, you, we follow in Abel, you follow him it does. through the subway. Yeah. It does. It has that, gra- and that's where I thought Munich very early on. I thought because it had that Munich style in the, mm. in the very early sequence. Then the introduction of Tom Hanks is very sort of quintessentially talking to Alan Alda. Yeah. yeah, and Alan Alda. Oh, God, love Alan Alda in a film. Yeah, great supporting cast. Great support. Jesse, Amy, Jesse Amy Clemens. Adams. Oh, Jesse Plemons yeah, as well. Amy Adams, yeah. Amy Adams, who I thought was uh, Kathleen Quinlan for the longest time in the film mm. because they are starting to look the not, same. Not, not Amy Adams. Amy, Amy Ryan? Amy Ryan, Amy sorry. Ryan. Amy, Adams, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amy Ryan is the one from The Office. Amy Adams is from The Office. I thought I'd pick up on it now before we just get comments so, about it. Yeah. So <laughs> this isn't up to uh, the level of sort of what you would call iconic Spielberg. This is no E.T. This is no Schindler's List. This is you know, n- none of the classics. This, I'd say this stands sort of akin to something like Munich. You don't you don't come up with Munich when you hear Spielberg's name. It's not an immediate sort of suggestion, but, but it's it a great film. It's a great film. Yeah. And it's very enjoyable. Um, it's uh, it's a reminder that Hank should never be underestimated, and he will keep <laughs> turning out things like this and Captain and Captain Phillips, and he will maintain his stance as the Jimmy Stewart of this generation. But if you're going to see the film for anything, see it for Mark Rylance. He is terrific in it. So we've got to talk about uh, Ryan Gosling. Yeah, let's do this. So. Right, Ryan Gosling, mm-hmm. he is teaming up with the director of the film Whiplash, which I loved. You loved Whiplash. I thought Whiplash was a very good film, I just don't like Miles Teller. Well, let's, let's not have this weekly Miles <laughs> Teller bashing. Anyway, so Gosling has been approached by Damien Chazelle. Damien Chazelle, Damien Chazelle, Chazelle uh, to play uh, Neil Armstrong in a biopic. That's going to be awesome. Isn't it? Yeah. I, could, I, could I love that casting. That's fantastic. That would really work yeah. for me. So should we do the top ten before we move on? We'll do the first half of the top ten. Let's do, yeah, let's do ten to six. Number ten. We have found the perfect guy. In a terrible film. <laughs> it is. It's a really ropey, sort of substandard late 80s, early 90s thriller. It wastes a perfectly fine cast on really shoddy material. You can see every movement coming a mile off. And Michael Ely deserves a lot better than the perfect guy. That, that's for sure. Number nine. Rem Rattan Dan Payo. Which is the first time in a long time that we've had a Bollywood film stick around for a second week in yeah. the top ten. So, I mean, it's not been pressure and we haven't seen it. But uh, it's hanging in there. It's hanging in there. Number eight. I'm going to do it this time. You do it. Go on. 
Nibsy. <laughs> so Pan at number eight, and uh, he, Levi Miller, who uh, yeah. obviously plays Pan, did turn up in last week's episode of Supergirl. I, had, I did, remember yeah. I sent you the screenshot from that, yeah. and puberty has not been kind to him. Um, but uh, he's not the worst thing in Pan. Um, indeed, it's everything else about Pan. Yeah, it is. Even Joe Wright is bad in this movie. His first ten minutes, in which is set in Victoria, London. Well, not Victoria, sorry, World War Two era London. Mm. Uh, fantastic. When we get with Jolly Roger, we're when, going through space. Exactly. Fantastic. Great. When you get to Neverland, the film falls apart. You've got uh, Hugh Jackman, who thinks he's uh, he thinks the film's about him. He thinks he's the comic relief. You've got Garrett Hedlund, who thinks he's the comic relief. Well, hey, kid. Hey, kid. And hey, you've got, kid. You've got Rooney Mara, who thinks she's the feminist action star, which she's not. And then you've got the blinking LED, which is Tinkerbell. And you can't <laughs> help but think, really? This is what we got from a pan-revisionist origin yeah. story. In so we go from uh, Julie Roberts to an LED bulb. Yep, stopping at May Whitman on the way. Number seven. The Dressmaker. This is a new entry. Uh, you, you really like this. You were I did like The Dressmaker. Yeah. It will have you in stitches, trademark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the marketing Copyright somewhere. Trademark. Actually, I'm on the marketing somewhere for saying yeah. it will have you in stitches. Uh, I've yet to see that, though. So if anyone sees it, please do send it to me. Um, the Dressmaker, which I think was a really funny, really sort of ooh, all over the place, bonkers film. But it mm. works. It, it is nuts, but it does just about work. By the time it goes insane in the third act, it's earned the right to do so and you think okay that's great and it has got this sort of this is why she's a star performance from Kate Winslet got Hugo Weaving who I can only describe as delightful there's no other way to describe (laughs) it just simply delightful simply delightful and then you've got uh, Liam Hemsworth who is a movie star it turns out he has movie star credits he's not just the Billy Baldwin of this generation Um, and then you've got uh, Judy Davis who is all, all grime and grump and a lot of fun. What's not to like? Number six. Can everyone just go see Steve Jobs, please? <laughs> just I liked it. You liked it. Wilson liked it. Wilson went and saw it this week as like well, it, yeah. and he was he was a big fan of it as well. Um, I think it's got some terrific performances, a lot of style in the direction, and of course, it's got a fantastic screenplay. Yeah, the screenplay Hansen. is like another cast member. I think it, really? we're counting down to the Oscar nominations purely, just waiting for that to get acknowledged. Because it has to, on it? it it will, but famously, when films kind of flop this big, it mm, does hurt my chances. Is, though, is it mm. going to be a best adapted screenplay or oh, an original screenplay? Yeah. Because it is an original screenplay, but it is arguably an adaptation. That's going to be an interesting one mm. because we had this with Guardians of the Galaxy a couple of years <laughs> ago, where it had to count as an adapted because it came from a book so if that counts I would imagine this does as well go see it though because you should it's awesome it's brilliantly acted and it is entertaining it is it's like a re- it's like three really great stage plays yeah that is the best way of yeah. putting it really so let's uh, have a look at we'll just plug our competitions in yeah, before, we, before we cut to the break so uh, we've got oh, we've got some interesting ones coming up what have we got I've, okay but first of all we've got uh, we've got you're gonna love this <laughs> we've got limited edition okay, limited edition Paddington DVDs to give away we've got those first of all they're these new oh, uh, 3D edition Paddington okay, uh, yeah. DVDs and we've also got this, I'm really proud of this limited <laughs> edition Blu-rays for pixels these are the full size Pac-Man heads that light no up way. and they've got the Blu-ray in the bottom yeah. of it oh that's very cool and if you go on to onscreenfilm.com go into our competition section there are images and you can enter on there and you can see all these things for yourself there's loads of other competitions that even I up. want to enter that yeah, you yeah. would I mean, the Pixar Blu-ray as well has a feature where you can sync up your uh, iPad or your Android phone or whatever with the, with the film mm. and play the video games with the characters in accordance with the film 
How, how was oh, it? That, that, that for me, that's a selling point. Yeah. But it, it unfortunately made me have to add an Adam Sandler movie to my Christmas list this year. <laughs> but, hey, uh, Matt, we're going to have to review uh, the Netflix film at some point. We are, we are. Ridiculous as well. Six. <laughs> so, onscreenfilm.com, go in our competition section, and we'll be back after this. With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. And we're back. So, should we look at uh, Carol next? Yes. Yeah, so, this is uh, Rina Mara and uh, Kate Blanchett. In a Todd Haynes film, which I, like I, presumed, Haynes, I yeah. presumed you would, actually. <laughs> I, I, mean, I am his type. <laughs> you, you are clearly his fan base, it would seem. So, just uh, just for those of us who, who aren't particularly enamoured with Mr. Haynes, what is his body of work entailed? Well, my favourite of his films, he did uh, a film called I'm Not There, yeah, which is the Bob Dylan biopic. This is the one with. Was it, it wasn't Tilda Swinton. Who played. Uh, Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett, that was it. Okay, yeah, there you go. You, you would automatically assume Tilda Which, Swinton. It's you? either Kate Blanchett or Tilda Swinton. Yeah, or just disappear. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a biopic, but not really. It's loads of different people playing Dylan-like characters. It, exactly. Yeah. Right, so you've got uh, Carol, which is set in the 1950s. Uh, Kate Blanchett plays the titular character, whom is a woman in the midst of not a divorce, but a separation. Uh, she herself is a sort of closeted, closeted from society lesbian, although not so, not so closeted from her husband, hence their separation. And she uh, has a chance encounter with a young department store work- worker played by Rooney Mara, and the pair sort of embark on it's a it's a friendship that starts to blossom into something more. But this coincides with um, more movements in Carol's marriage towards custody arguments and the Christmas season as well, which sees uh, Carol's daughter being t- you know sent away with her father, <coughs> and Carol looking to basically get away from it all. Mm. We have a clip. And your meals. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Enjoy. I'm starved. Bon appetit. What do you do on Sundays? Oh, nothing in particular. What do you do? Oh, nothing lately. Maybe you'd like to come visit me sometime. You're welcome to. At least there's some pretty country around where I live. Would you like to come visit me this Sunday? Yes. <laughs> what a strange girl you are. Why? Flung out of space. Kate Blanche out there reading Mara. It's um right, it's an interesting one, this one, because it's not an entertaining film by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think really? you could it's not there's nothing multiplex fulfilling about it. You couldn't put this you know, on a Friday in front of a Friday night multiplex crowd and, and be surprised that they didn't enjoy it. Yeah, but that's, that's, not, that's not their audience. It's, it's not, but it's not the audience. Yeah. That's what I was gonna say. This is very much a case of it's been released very purposely at this time of year because, mm. as as we, as we know, it's it's on the run up to Oscar season now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Everything, every second thing that comes out now is let's go for Oscars. Yeah. And uh, say, so Kate Blanchett remains the sort of unacknowledged movie star in this one. And Kate Blanchett, yeah, that's what Kate Blanchett is really. She is this unacknowledged movie star titan kind of figure, and uh, she's in everything, but we never really think of her as a great movie star. No, she's kind of like our version of Meryl Streep. I don't know. I think Meryl Streep kind of gets awarded as too much of a movie star. <laughs> also, all of the Oscars. Yes, far too many Oscar nominations. Nineteen now? Eighteen, nineteen, something like that. I think I saw nineteen somewhere on a meme recently. 
But uh, so this is a, a very classically Hollywood performance from Kate Blanchett. But the film itself is not classically Hollywood. It has that. Uh, it's, it's all about brilliant sort of verisimilitude. It's all about the period setting and the production design and very much capturing sort of the spirit of the day and the sort of sentiment of the day, the sort of mentality of the day. What you've got is a screenplay by Phyllis Neji, who I believe she's a playwright who's basically moved into the feature market with this one. And what she's done, she's provided this brilliant screenplay that affords an opportunity for everybody involved to deliver these absolutely powerhouse performances. So, Kate Blanchett, great, grand Hollywood performance. Very much a sort of Betty Davis-like quality to it. Um, you've got Rooney Mara, who's all wide-eyed and sort of innocent, and but, but really lovable at the same time and she's come to this sort of sexual cross this sort of sexual exploration mm. right as she's at a crossroads in her young life deciding to sign what she wants to do with the rest of it there's enormous madmen like quality as well to her scenes and then of course you have Todd Haynes's direction which is really brilliantly sort of uh, judged he's given he's afforded them a distance there's a distance to his his direction which is which he breaks only when, only when it starts to become really emotional. Besides that, he, he's quite standoffish in the sort of culturally appropriate moments. And you think, okay, that's, that's quite a clever way to do it. Like I say, this isn't going to work for a Friday Night Multiplex crowd. Why would it? It's not really for that no, sort of not thing. At all. But it's yet another sort of reminder that Kate Blanchett is this great movie star that never really gets the sort of Nicole Kidman-like level of acknowledgement. And, and, that's, yeah. and you said, can, those two should be the other way around really now. Oh, at this stage, yeah. At this stage, I think you know, the, the the sort of gravitas we afford Nicole Kidman, I think Kate Blanchett maybe uh, sort of... After watching uh, Grace of Monaco. Absolutely. That, you mean that perfume advert? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So here's an interesting story for you. Yeah. Right, we've got an upcoming reboot of Kickboxer coming out. I did notice. Right. Yeah. We're just going to have Jean-Claude Van Damme playing the yeah. mentor role this time. It's going to be called Kickboxer Vengeance. It's one with uh, Dave Batiste. Dave Batiste, yeah. Gina Carano, Georges Saint-Pierre, or GSP as he's called. Yeah. Remember from the beginning of Winter Soldier? Yeah, yeah, the kicker yeah, guy. The kicker yeah. guy who kicks Captain... But, what, what, what is, Captain what is his character kicking? name? Uh, do you know I, I forget Bal- Baltrog something like Baltrog that Baltrog the Leaper Baltrog the Leaper that's it um, the, before this movie's even come out it's, it's apparently been made it's coming out in uh, late 2016 before it's even been released they're already planning a sequel so Kickboxer Vengeance is going to be followed by Kickboxer Retaliation Oh, of course it's an art title. Of course it's an art course title. An art title. And uh, that's going to also feature a return for Alain oh. Moussi, who plays the uh, the lead in the reboot, mm-hmm. uh, Gina Carano, Dave Batista, and Georges Saint-Pierre. So the only person not confirmed to be returning is Jean-Claude Van Damme. So he's probably going to die. Well, I don't know. Is he? Is he just not going to return? Oh, he just wanted too much money. <laughs> Quite possibly. So shall we um, shall we have a look then, real quickly, mm. at uh, Being AP, which is the... Uh, yeah, I, I'm not too aware of that. You know, this is no. a documentary about uh, AP McCoy, the infamous... Well, That's a great name. The, lo- the legendary <laughs> jockey. He is one of them. He's probably the most successful racing jockey in history at this point. Yeah. And um, he's, he's unbeaten in his record. Uh, Tony McCoy, you've got this documentary. I'll tell We'll, we'll have a clip. It's all about his, his life and career. We have a clip. I do worry about, about you know, maybe not being as good as I once was or not having as many winners as I should have done or worrying that people might think that because I've had a lot of success in the past that I might not be as hungry to have it again, you know, so. Or they might think that, you know, his time is up, he's not as good as he once was, uh, which happens to every sports person, so. You know, I will give it a go and try and ride my fastest ever 50th winner if I can 
Um, but also I wanted to be champion jockey this year because if I am, it'll be my 20th season. And, um, you know, that's something that I could never have dreamed of, of being able to do. So this season will be harder than any of the others, you know, to try and achieve that. So. This is a sort of really insightful uh, attempt to document the sort of life and times of uh, Tony McCoy. It's directed by uh, Anthony Vonke, and uh, it's a very strange animal. It's kind of like they've asked someone to do a proper straight-up biography on uh, Tony McCoy, and then then Vonke has simply just gone off the rails and decided, you know what, there's more interesting stuff I'm going to do. I'm going to get into the psychology of the man. And as you can hear from that clip, uh, he's a very sort of... Uh, very introspective sort of a character. He's, he's very much about his thoughts and feelings, and there's a lot of self-doubt in him, and it all comes through in this film. The only problem is that the film fixates almost exclusively on McCoy and his wife uh, Chantal, Chanel, hmm. and uh, it doesn't really have any other characters or real interviews outside of them. There are one or two minor ones, but it's mostly McCoy and Chanel, and uh, it, the problem is that by focusing on them and not really having much more room to grow... It it feels overlong. It feels like it's gone off the rails at times. It feels like it doesn't quite know where it wants to be. It's very very well made though, and it's a really irritating mixture. <laughs> For one thing, you've got this uh, this score by Andrew Phillips. Now I've looked into him, and he's not really a prolific film musician. He's not done too much. But his score, and you'll have heard this in the clip as well, it's amazing. It's a beautiful score. He mm. has done more for the cinematography of this film with his score. <laughs> he's elevated it. He yeah. has elevated it. And he's added this sort of class and grandeur to it all. <laughs> and uh, he, he managed to sort of provide, he provides more of a narrative to it than Vonke himself. Mm. I do think that you know people who are genuine racing aficionados will enjoy the film in the same way that boxing fans will have enjoyed Mr. Calzaghe last week. But outside yeah. of that, I don't really think there's, there's not much much to latch on to and that's a shame because it is a really really polished film hmm. have you heard this week's news about uh, Sir Kenneth Branagh ah Sir Ken Sir Ken oh it? who's he playing now? go on in this one okay well he had uh, been attached to uh, direct a new adaptation of uh, Murder on the Orient Express Murder on the Orient Express well he's found someone to play the, type, uh, the character of Poirot himself the Hercule Poirot Hercule Poirot he is going to tackle that role himself well that kind of adds up because didn't he cast himself as Victor Frankenstein years ago <laughs> yes he did with varied results and then he <laughs> cast himself as his own Jack Ryan villain as well again with varied results I'm amazed he wasn't Odin in Thor I really am <laughs> I could have imagined I love, I love Anthony Hopkins <laughs> I'm just surprised he was but you're not king it's amazing <laughs> How many yeah. people, how I, many people I think it'll work. As many as are needed. <laughs> I, I think it will rock well. I think, I think really he'd good. be a very, very good Poirot. I'm looking forward to the film, though. For more than anything, I want to see the all-star cast that mm. they assemble for Murder on the Orient Express in 2016, 2017? I is. think it's 2016. Yeah. I don't imagine it will take too long to produce because it's quite a small-scale sort of film. It's confined it's within a train. on a train. <laughs> With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen. And we're back. So shall we, uh, shall we carry on with the top ten? We can finish that. Yeah, let's do it. Number five. Brooklyn. Saoirse Ronan. Well, it's gone up a place as well. So it has, yeah. Do you think word of mouth might have actually yielded some positive results? Because it oh, deserves maybe. it. maybe. Yeah, definitely. It does deserve it. Saoirse Ronan is excellent in it. Donald mm. Gleeson, I like very much in it as well. Um, I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of the film in general, yeah. but I really like Nick Hornby's screenplay. And I thought... It's got some verb, it's got some wit. It uh, does a nice job setting up its, uh, its, its sort of the world of 1950s sort of uh, Irish immigrants. It's a mm. really compelling, interesting and engaging romantic drama. 
And, uh, well, I like Saoirse Ronan in more or less anything, so I'm, I'm kind of happy too, with yeah. it. Number four. Hotel Transylvania 2. Should I ask if you've seen this this week? <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to see it. You're never going to see this. <laughs> I wait until Halloween next year. That's it. Well, yeah. it'd be on the bargain shelves by then, I'd imagine. Well, I'll, I'll get both of them in one of those like, double packs. Double yeah. pack, yeah. TK, was it TJ Hughes? Not TJ Hughes. Uh, TK Max. Matalan. Matalan, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. So, uh, Hotel Transylvania 2, which I think fans of the original Hotel Transylvania are going to sort of eat up because it's very much more of the same, but it's sort of a Meet the Fockers style inversion of the formula mm, where. They change it a little bit. They change it round slightly. And it's, it's still. It's it's still as funny, it's still as witty, it's still quite a, as brilliantly excessive in terms of its Gendy Tartakovsky animation. Mm. And I really liked it. Number three. And I haven't seen this one either. <laughs> uh, the Lady in the Van. I knew you were planning to see this one. I was, yeah. So this is an adaptation of the Alan Bennett uh, play, slash book, slash radio play. Yeah. And, uh, and now Maggie, it's a film. And now it's a film. And Maggie Smith is playing the role for not the first time. She didn't it two or three times now she's played this before. She's definitely um, done it for the radio play. She's definitely right? done it before. And she's excellent in it. It's a really yeah. great performance. But it's the kind of thing that we know Maggie Smith can do really, really well. The sort of uh, misanthropic yeah. elderly lady. <laughs> Commudgingly, yeah. Commudgingly. She's so good in it, though. She's so much fun. And it is a funny, heartwarming film, but I really like Alex Jennings and his portrayal of Alan Bennett though, he's mm. brilliant. Number two Spectre, which should I say, I had the pleasure of seeing a second time and Yeah, you did say. Well, it is this awkward fusion of the Daniel Craig era with attempts to go back to the Roger Moore style of, sort of feels like glow-popping yeah. sort of more adventurous uh, you got a big silly henchman who doesn't talk and, yeah. yeah, and it doesn't quite work it feels very cumbersome at times it's bloated and at other times nothing happens it's there's a lot of there's a lot of excess to it mm. and I don't mean excess in the opulent sort of extravagant way that Bond always has but in terms of a production value side of it like the opening features what must be 10,000 extras mm. and you're just thinking why is, why is this not 500 extras like it used to be why why go this excessive with it because that's all the film seems to be about is let's see how big we, need we to can make, make this because I guess after Skyfall that is a lot of pressure there is a very a, a very, so, uh, throw, very throw money at it it is it's a misconception I think with this that there's a, that the bigger is better and bigger isn't necessarily better because Skyfall mm. wasn't a big film Skyfall was a tight focused and lean film and that's why we loved it so much their entire climax is Home Alone and it's just it's set on this little farm yeah, set in a house and it's got all this so and it works so well and this has the ending from an episode of Spooks. Yes, it does. That's just and not... Mission Impossible. And Mission Impossible. And Rogue Nation turned out to be a better spy movie than Spectre. Who'd have thunk it? Exactly. Number one. The Hunger Games, Mockingjay, Part 2, City of Bones, Mortal Instruments, Maze Runner. <laughs> Allegiant. <laughs> yeah. So, Hunger Games, it's over. It's all done. That's it's it, It's yeah. done and dusted. This franchise has come to an end. The mm. adventures of Katniss <laughs> are no more. And the capital is... Is it saved? Is it not? You'll have to see the film to find mm. out. No spoilers but, here. <laughs> uh, I think... I, th- I think fans of the book, I think, will feel, you know, well done by it. I think yeah. they'll feel, they'll well, feel well served by it. Um, I think anyone who's not a fan of the book, like myself, I've never read the books, um, I just felt that there was too much took place sort of off-screen, too much took place in an offhand moment, and it promised big things that didn't quite deliver. It promised character notes that weren't quite there. I mean, the, the ultimate resolution of its love triangle is somewhat ham-fisted by one of the characters simply being cast aside by the plot it would seem rather than anything else and 
your love triangle is resolved by, oh, well, this one's still here, so we'll have him. And you're like, really? <laughs> Convenience. Convenience. Yeah. Um, I think the two best performances in the saga belong to uh, Don Sutherland and Julianne Moore. I don't mm. think the Katniss was a particularly engaging lead character in hindsight. But you know what? It made a start of Jennifer Lawrence. It's not difficult to see why, although the film doesn't really paint her as much of a likeable lead. But you know what? Like I say, fans will love it. And this is the fourth one of these. So if you're going to be... Uh, fourth? Fifth? This is the fourth. Fourth. This is the fourth one. If you're going to be uh, sticking around through four movies, then odds are you're a fan by now. So, eh. Speaking of uh, fourth movies, by the way, we're going to get a fourth Riddick movie. Did you know about this? Do we need it? Well, it, it's the little sci-fi franchise that just won't die. <laughs> but So not only are we getting a fourth... Because these are owned by Vin Diesel now. He, his production company owns they the own rights them. now. Nobody else wanted them. Well, actually, it was part of his agreement for returning to the Fast and the Furious franchise was that Universal gave him the rights to Riddick. Oh, really? That was actually part of it. They also they made him a producer on the Fast and Furious series and they gave yeah. him Riddick. I can't believe he has this much clout in Hollywood. <laughs> well, the Fast and Furious Fair movies... Make, them, they make so. that much money, that's what it is. Yeah. But So we're getting a fourth Riddick movie as well as an accompanying team. TV series called Merc City, which is going to yeah. chart the lives of the mercenaries and bounty hunters mm. of Riddick's universe. So that That's a pretty cool to. idea, actually. Like it's that. not a bad one, is it? So, we'll have a look at uh, The Good Dinosaur, I think. Yeah, this is next. the latest one, Pixar. We've had two uh, original Pixar films this year. For the first time ever, two in a year. Yeah. So... Uh, the Good Dinosaur, which yeah. takes place in a world in which the asteroid never hit the Earth, it never wiped the dinosaurs out. <laughs> it's set in the present day still, although dinosaurs have only evolved to the point of farming. They, they, okay. They've not evolved much further than that. Humans are like feral dogs, yeah. feral, feral dogs kind of thing, or wildlings. And uh, what you have is our hero, Arlo, who is a sort of cowardly dinosaur, a herbivore no less, who is separated from his, uh, his family's farm and uh, forced to find his way home with only a wildling for company. Here's a clip. So, how far did you say that watering hole was? I got a job for you. I'm not really good at jobs. I need you to keep on the dodge and sidle up the lob while they pass them horn heads, just hooting and hollering and score off them wrestlers. We'll cut dirt and get the bulge on them. What? He just wants you to get on that rock and scream. Uh, but who's out there? They'll come right at you. You hold your ground. Don't move. Don't move? What if they have claws and big teeth? Don't overthink it. So, if this is the first time we've had two of these in a year. What this does prove is that uh, even under the strain of two releases in one year, Pixar can still, on their worst day, turn out something better than the likes of DreamWorks, for example. Yeah. That being said, this is the weakest Pixar film since Cars 2. So, which I think you and I said, it only needed to be better it, than Cars um, It sounds like they have just done that. And that's cheap. it. I mean, if that's, the, if that's the remit, just make it better than Cars 2, then they have succeeded. Can't really argue with that. What you've got here is a sort of traditional boy and his dog story. But flipped. But flipped, so that yeah. the dog is actually, you know, a feral human. And a sort of, it's almost wordless in a sense. There are, I mean, as you can hear from our clip, there are uh, there are other speaking characters like Sam Elliott and Anna Paquin's characters, and they take it into a sort of weirdly western type uh, type story yeah. with cattle rustling. And that was like uh, cowboy T Rexes, which is cool. Yeah. I would describe it best as Pixar's attempt to reheat the stew of the land before time with you know a, a dash of Ice Age and a pinch of the Lion King. It definitely feels like Ice Age. It 
it, it definitely does, and it's all dished up in this new Pixar bowl. You know, that's the best way to describe it. Um, the Pixar personality is ever present. You, the, you you don't deny for one second that what you're watching is a Pixar film. It feels like it throughout. It doesn't really do much with the whole dinosaurs never died concept. Mm. I mean, for the intents and purposes of the story, this could just have been set in dinosaur times without the asteroid aspect, and it would have made no difference whatsoever. Um, but what uh, really sets the film apart more than anything is the the visuals of it. And because uh, this was shown to us in Dolby Vision, which is this new photorealistic mm. high dynamic range technology, yeah. and it really enhanced what was already there, which is this uh, this beautiful style they pioneered. You know that short, the blue umbrella, a few yeah, years I ago. Yeah, I love that short. That photorealistic uh, short. They've done that again. They've brought it to a film this time. It's got photorealistic texturing, and they've they found a way to apply that to traditionally animated sort of cartoon like characters, and it all looks really terrific. Mm. Kids are going to love the film. Uh, parents are going to be, at the very least, engaged. Just by the visuals. By the visuals. Right? Parents yeah. will, but they won't dislike it at all. They won't mm. be bored by it. They will think it's not Finding Nemo, but you yeah. kind of think that of a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, even Inside Out, which I think is terrific, I still thought, eh, it's not Finding Nemo. Yeah, you're not as, like, completely enamoured as what, you're not. say, me. And this, <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't as iconic as Inside Out was. Like, Inside Out, you'll see those toys on, on sale in five years' time. In oh, 20, you will. In 2020, you'll still see anger in the Disney store, but you won't see Arlo alongside him on the shelf. No. Um, it's an entertaining enough film, it's just a little bit safe by Pixar standards, mm. uh, which is a shame. We should plug, by the way, uh, the quiz... Oh yeah, we this should, is, we should this definitely quiz, put the yeah. quiz. Uh, our monthly film quiz. If you go along to onscreenfilm.com, in our feature section, you can take our November film quiz and try your hand at twenty-five questions of today's modern multiplex. Ooh. This month's <laughs> theme is young adult adaptations, but they're not all Hunger Games related. There are other young adult adaptations in there, yeah. and also general film questions as well. So go to onscreenfilm.com, try that, and we'll be back after this break with the latest film news and reviews. This is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. So on to My Skinny Sister then, which is, this is a Swedish drama about a teenage girl with uh, anorexia. Uh, what you've got is you've got uh, Katia, who's a teenage figure skater, as, uh, as so many teenagers are these of days, course, because yeah. it's, it's the most common thing in the world to be a figure skater. <laughs> but for the purposes of an anorexia drama, it makes complete sense. So you've got a teenage figure skater who, of course, has anorexia, in the context of this story, and her younger sister, who sort of looks up to and worships her, discovers this and starts trying to help her, but before long makes things immeasurably worse. We don't have a clip, obviously, because it's all in Swedish. There are some weirdly really some English bits in it though. And everyone seems to be just bilingual. Well, it just like flits into English. <laughs> it just flits into it's like an episode that, of Firefly. That, that does happen in some like, European it's, films. It's very true. It? So this is the feature debut of uh, Sanna Lenken, a Swedish director, um, who directed a short before this called Eating Lunch, which was about um, a group of uh, teenagers being treated for anorexia, trying to eat their lunch within thirty minutes. So you think, okay, there might be something of a recurring theme going on here, and if you look into the film there is a, she has in interviews talked about her own teenage anorexia so think, okay so there is a personal element to this and that does show in the film itself now the film is a really highbrow exploration of its of its subject matter uh, you can't really deny that and it's got these great performances at the centre of it you've got Amy Diasimo 
who has now shortened that down to Amy Diamond, because presumably that's what yeah. it translates to, and uh, Rebecca Josephson. They are uh, the elder and younger sisters, respectively. And uh, you can't fault them for performances. Their performances are absolutely terrific. Um, they really sell the tale, and they really get you emotionally invested in it. Um, now, so Sam Lincoln's uh, direction as well, her uh, production design, her cinematography, all top-notch. And it is it's that great tradition of Swedish cinema, which has become something in the last sort of, five years or so, where we now have more of a concept of Swedish cinema than we've ever had before. Yeah, it's definitely um, come to prominence. It definitely has, and I blame, I blame the the onslaught of crime dramas for this one. I think. <laughs> Damn you, Damn. BBC Four. Damn you, Wallander. <laughs> entirely BBC Four for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only problem with the film is it's not director Sanna Lenkin's uh, work that's at fault. It is, however, writer Sanna Lenkin's faults that are on display here and although the film is very well made it's very well acted it's very well shot it's incredibly engrossing it isn't however really interesting and it's because the screenplay doesn't really stray much further than the realm of the standard middle of the day tv movie kind of affair you, you, can, you kind of feel like this is the sort of thing that should star whoever's on the C. If it was in English, it would star whoever's on, whoever's on the CW these days. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> it's uh, Leighton Meester in My Skinny Sister. You know, you kind of feel like that. Or uh, I don't know who the teenage stars are these days. But, uh, I'm yeah. definitely out of step. Yeah, I am, I am as well. This is because we don't have an equivalent to the OC now. That's what it is. Yes. We don't know who the teenage actors are. But as I say, you've got a very fine helmet, you've got a very fine cast, and uh, the problem is the film veers off into. To movie of the week terrain, it's got very sort of televisual sentimentality to it in that regard, and it's hard to overlook that in spite of everything else being as good as it is. Um, it's a terrific platform for everyone involved, but really, it doesn't come down to much more than that, and that's a shame because they are terrific. Sam Lincoln as a director, that cast, they are terrific. It's just a shame that the film isn't. So if anyone was looking forward to Fantastic Four 2... Oh, yes, we've got to talk about this, haven't we? I've got some pretty bad news for you. <laughs> pretty bad, but completely Wait, expected it's, it's news. It's bad for Fox. It's not bad for yeah. us, because we don't have to watch it. Oh, that's a great point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it has been dropped from the uh, release schedule. It was meant to be a summer of 2017, and now it is summer of never. This is presumably because the first one went down like a sack of bricks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, will Marvel get the rights back? We don't know. Probably not, because Fox are trying to Claw keep everything. Uh, yeah. Did you know that the first week that Fantastic Four was opened in the summer, they uh, they did test screenings mm. while it was on general release, I should add. Yeah, I, um, I remember this. Yeah, they gave questionnaires to everyone and asked what they could do to improve uh, the series. <laughs> Give it to Marvel. And it, was, it was almost universally <laughs> yeah. uh, agreed. Of course it Give was. it back to Marvel. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want uh, a good insight into uh, Fantastic Four, do look at this week's Honest trailer, which is on our <laughs> social feeds as well, actually. And it's, uh, I think it's uh, bit.ly forward slash fan four stick. Fan four stick. <laughs> it's fantastic with a four in place of the A, so yeah. yeah. So what have we got next, then? Oh, we've got to talk about Black Mass. Let's talk about Black Mass. So this is the latest from director Scott Cooper, who most recently brought us, I believe it was, Out of the Furnace. Out of the Furnace with, and uh, Crazy Hearts. Oh, Crazy, Crazy Heart was... 2010, wasn't it? And Out yeah. of the Furnace is 2013. 2013, and now he's done this. Right, so he's an actor-turned director, and it turns out he's a pretty good director, optimally. <laughs> so now we have his take on Whitey Bulger, the most notorious gangster in the history of Boston, whom I can't help but think Jack Nicholson may have based some of his departed <laughs> role upon. Maybe, maybe a touch. Maybe a smidge. Yeah. So Whitey is, of course, played here by Johnny Depp, under, under well, very heavy prosthetics. You've got Almost unrecognisable. Almost unrecognisable 
Johnson recognisable. He's called Whitey for a very specific reason. He's a very pale man. Yeah. And what you've got is, the, say, the true story of the alliance that formed between Whitey Bulger and a childhood friend who was an FBI agent mm. tasked with you know, policing organised crime in the Boston area. An alliance formed between the pair whereby Whitey effectively used the FBI to fight his mafia wars for him so that he could then, unimpeded, grow into the kingpin of the land. Of course, in this scenario, head of the FBI is played by Joel Edgerton. uh, Whitey's elder brother, who's a senator, is played by Benedict Cumberbatch, although don't get too excited about that, he's not in it too much. And we have a clip. Brian, take the bag, I want you to have it. Yeah, I want you to have it. To do the hit on, on the wheel? Now, that's $20,000 for you to not do the hit. I'm okay. Take the money, keep your mouth shut about what you just heard. It's best you're not involved. Take the money, take the money, take the money. Okay. Peter Sarsgaard in that clip yeah. there. I mean, because you, you've seen the film. I right? have, I have seen it. Now, I think we actually agree on this somewhat. <clears throat> so this is going to be known in pop culture circles forevermore as the mobster movie with Joey Depp in prosthetics. Yeah. That, that's pretty much it. In the same way that we look at J. Edgar's only going to remember yeah. as that movie. Oh, it's also going to be known as when uh, Johnny came back. Because <laughs> that's what it's been flattered. It's been com- it kind of has. Flattered as like a comeback after Pirates and The Tourist and all these you know, it's kind of middle much films. of a comeback, is it? I would completely agree with that. You've got, I say, Depp himself is not the problem, I don't think. His portrayal of Whitey Bulger is perfectly, it's, it's, it's great. It's intriguing. On occasion, it's even thrilling. The problem is, it's a very pointless story in that it begins in a specific place, it stays in that place, and it ends in that place. Hmm. And really, okay. You don't see much of his rise, really, which is what I really, really wanted to see. There's no rise. The fall is is isolated to one shot. Not even a scene, a shot. Hmm. And it's all about... The, basically the days of and mm. that's a problem you've got a cast who seem to think that they're making a high end take on Donnie Brasco you've got a director who, for all, and writers who for all intents and purposes are going for a high end departed yeah. and you've got the film in the middle just lost Hmm. And because this film has, you know, such a complete absence of any kind of direction, what you've then got, weirdly as well, is this score by, now, I want to say Junkie XL, but he's actually gone by his real name. (laughs) Oh, has he? What is his real name? Tom Holkenborg. That's it, yeah. Tom Holkenborg. Because he, he did uh, Mad Max. He did. He also did. He also contributed to The Dark Knight Rises, strangely And as well. uh, what was that, Liam Neeson, Joel Kinnaman? Oh, Renault Knight. He did that, yeah. Well, because you've got the film that's so lost, you've got this score which feels like a really patronising audio instruction book on how you're <laughs> supposed to be feeling. And it's just, what? This is a gangster film. Yes. This is when you're supposed to be feeling emotional because the music's swelling. Yeah. Dakota Johnson's on screen. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and no one needs Dakota Johnson on screen. Not nobody. Not ever. (laughs) And that's the problem. It's such a tonal and artistic mess that the Mm. title winds up being the best description for it, which is the film is just this black mass on screen in front of you. If you want to learn more about Whitey Bulger, there's a much better documentary open last year. Um, it's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. Whitey, United States of America versus James uh, James J. Bulger. 
What you've got in this case, though, is just a wasted vehicle for Johnny Depp. Donnie Brasco is a better character tale. The Departed is a better mob story. And if you want a better Bostonian crime drama, go and find Ben Affleck's The Town. The Town, I was just going to say that. Much better version. Great film. And you get Jeremy Renner in it doing some grit. And that's always fun. What do you think we should give uh, the old film of the week to? Well, it's got to be Bridge of Spies for me. Oh, well, for you as well. Be, yeah, I'm <laughs> unanimous. Because it's not going to be Black Mass, is it? not going to be Black Mass, for no. sure. And I really wanted Good Dinosaur to be it, but unfortunately, not not the case. At least it's good. At least it's good. It's better than Cars 2, which yeah. is all we hoped for. We've got some interesting ones next week to come. Oh, yeah. I'm Hit really, me. really looking forward to next week. Oh, oh I know what it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, on. so first of all, we've got Victor Frankenstein with James McAvoy and Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, whatever. And Jan- <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe's a fun little kid. Yeah, he really is. I, I don't like Max Landis. You don't like oh Max Landis is right, isn't he? We've got Christmas with the Coopers. A John Goodman Christmas comedy. Yay! And I love June Squibb. She's yeah, in June it, Squibb. So. And, and Olivia Wilde's in it as well, I believe. Yeah, Amanda Seafood. We've got Sunset Song, uh, Terrence Davis one starring Peter okay. Mullen, a big Peter Mullen oh, fan. Oh, as well. yeah. Uh, we've got Imba Means Sing, which is a documentary about the African choir. And not only are we reviewing that, we have an interview with its producer, no CNN's Erin Laven. So how cool is that? Erin Laven is the most American name. It is, and she is the most American person I have really? ever encountered in my life. Uh, we also have the Adam Scott Christmas horror movie, Krampus. I'm so excited for Don't that. ever type Krampus into Netflix or Amazon Prime, because there's about 19 films about Krampus. <laughs> and they're all horror movies. Uh, we also have The Show of Shows, which is a documentary oh. about 100 years of vaudeville and circus shows, which is yeah. an interesting yeah, one. And, of course, Seth Rogen and the boys from This Is The End are back with their Christmas movie, The Night Before, which also stars Joseph Gordon-Lovett and uh, Anthony Mackie. Yeah. So busy all week. Busy all week yeah. next week. And, they, and you know the week after that, Sisters is out. So yeah, is. we we got some stuff to look forward <laughs> to. So... Well, that's it from us, really. Is, this yeah. has been a Candy Store production for On Screen. I've been Van Connor. My name is Still Case Allen. And we'll be back next week. Just show me the way to get out of here, and I'll be on my way. You've been listening to Off Screen. For more news and reviews, visit onscreenfilm.com. Of course, we couldn't just leave it there. There's so more. There's, there's more because obviously, for the purposes of radio, we have to fit in. You know, we have to fit it into about 40, 45 minutes. So. This is basically us doing like a Marvel post credits. This is a sting. But of course, there's a whole movie we didn't get to review, and we can't really forget it. That's just that's unfair to the movie, isn't it? Yeah. And you can't be unfair to a movie. You cannot. It's tried, unless it's Fantastic Four. Unless it's Fantastic Four. But you know, in this case, a movie did try to entertain us for ninety minutes, so it's only fair we review it. So unbranded. <laughs> Uh, which is, this is a, a, a strange little beast, no, yeah. no pun intended, given the subject matter. <laughs> this is a documentary about four uh, American college friends who decided to pursue their dream of riding a herd of Mustangs from the Mexican to the Canadian border. Because, Ooh. well, why not? That's cool. And, and that's really it. Now, you only get three on screen and one's filming. It's kind of, there's a lot of GoPro use in there. Yeah. Basically, in this day and age, what you've got is uh, you've got these uh, this endless pandering to uh, sort of Chinese demographics. You know, the idea that every tentpole we see seems to stop and start over again yeah. in China. Like, Transformers Age of Extinction literally stopped halfway through. But it's and so it's common China. now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's nice to see a film that's just refreshingly all-American. <laughs> and you literally do not get more all-American than this, which is, let's ride some Mustangs from A border to A border. <laughs> you know? And... Uh, 
let's say there's there's not much more of a point to the film than that. It's kind of about uh, the, these friends who find that the journey is slightly more daunting than they thought. I mean, it tries to make some uh, wait, say try it succeeds in uh, enlightening you on the uh, the grisly fate of a lot of wild mustangs in this day and age. For instance, there's a starvation problem. There's an overpopulation problem. There is the influence of man on their natural habitats, for instance, and you you learn quite a bit. But the film, I think, it in some sense it's trying to be blackfish for mustangs mustfish oh, that doesn't work that doesn't quite work black tang black tang black tang mustfish that sounds like a 70s blackfish. it does doesn't it sound black like a blackfish film um, it doesn't quite manage to be blackfish for mustangs but it does make an eloquent sort of heartwarming statement on, on the situation and about sort of our influences as species on mm. this other species um, those with a fascination for mustangs obviously this is naturally going to appeal to them because it's nice to see it given a cinematic treatment um but it does work as a good old-fashioned road movie, and even though there's not actually a road in it, yeah. it's a, there are actual highways every now and again, but it is mostly about, you know, we're just riding through the wilderness, and uh, it's beautiful to behold, it's really well shot. Uh, this is a TV director who's behind this, Philip Barabo, his name is, Barabo. and uh, he's a former TV cameraman, he's making his directorial debut with this, and it kind of makes the statement once and for all that TV is the best sort of terrain on which to find you know, uh, efficient, streamlined, and time-effective, stripped-down filmmakers. And which fact, an argument I've always made about uh, about people from TV, and uh, this kind of makes that case for you. It deserves um, the most praise for being that refreshing all-American yeah. reminder. <laughs> but you know, it's just nice to see, and it is a sort. It's an engaging, heartwarming tale. Um, although it will sort of ruin you as far as uh, ever enjoying the company of horses again, because <laughs> you'll just feel bad as a result. It's kind of like you're never going to see world after seeing black Yeah, it, it's kind of like that. 